job. We're going to be taking a look this morning at a, a passage in, in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, a, a letter uh, that Paul wrote to the, a church in Thessalonica back in the first century. And uh, what we've been taking a look at, and, and if you didn't notice that, that we are being persistent in our celebration of the season of Easter, that we are not done uh, celebrating the resurrection yet. And so what this book does is it gives us a glimpse, it gives us a hint into the kinds of lives, the kinds of reactions that some of the very first, some of the very earliest Christians responded to the news of the resurrection, how it changed their life, how it changed their thinking. And so we're going to be taking a look here in Second uh, Thessalonians, I mean First Thessalonians chapter two, and how they lived out their world, their their belief in the resurrection in a world with countless other faith systems alongside them. So join me or follow along in your bulletin as I read for us. For you yourselves knows, know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, that our labor, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we enter into your presence this morning. And God, our prayer is that as we look into the lives and the words of these people who believed in you long before we did, who 
uh, wrestled with what life in your kingdom looks like before we were ever conceived or thought of. That God, but as we look at how they wrestled and struggled and tried to figure out how to live in this world, God, that you, by your spirit, might encourage us, might teach us, might correct us, might lead us by your grace into your goodness. Because it is there, Lord, that we find our flourishing and we find our hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a, uh, oh, well, I guess I was probably a, a 19, 20 year old Bible college student, and uh, had a, a professor that came and he gathered with a group of my friends and, and we asked him to come bring a movie because that was the only way that movies were allowed in the dorm is if a professor like watched it with you. Um, there was that kind of Bible college. And so uh, we, we, you know, had a professor bring us a, a movie so that we could watch it um, with him. And, and the movie he brought was not quite what we were expecting. It was this 1999 independent film called The Big Kahuna. The, and it was a, a film that has really just three characters in it. And all three characters occupy one single set, one single hospitality suite, one hotel room that they were in, and, and they were intentionally the sort of bland kinds of men that you might pass by and never even notice. There was Phil Cooper and Larry Mann, who were played by Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito, who were salesmen for an industrial lubricant company, and, and they, along with this young uh, Christian man named Bob Walker, were sent to this big company convention, this big industrial convention, and they were there with one purpose in mind. There was a CEO of a major client that they hoped to land, the big kahuna. And so as these men gathered and as they lived these few days waiting out and, and, and hoping to get a chance to, to gain an audience with this one man, we see their lives and their dialogue as they interplay and they rescue. But as the, the, the movie goes along, you realize that the one person who actually gets a chance to talk to the big kahuna was the one person who wasn't supposed to. It was the 20-some-year-old evangelical Christian, Bob, who didn't even know that he was talking to the big kahuna as he presented the gospel of Jesus, uh, a, a, an evangelistic gospel presentation uh, to this man. And uh, then he followed it up with another presentation of the gospel, and his colleagues, his older gentlemen, were furious at him. They were so angry. They are like, this is the only reason we are here. We have been here for three days to make contact with this man, and you have ruined it all. And it leads to this climatic speech, and I want you to listen because I think it might strike some of you. One of the men has, has stormed off, but kind of the, the voice of reason, Danny DeVito's character, Phil Cooper is his name, he says this to young Bob. You too are an honest man, Bob. I believe that somewhere deep down inside you is something that strives to be honest. The question you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of my life? 
That means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to someone honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are just to find out for no other reason because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you are not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Now, to be clear, my Bible college was uh, founded and bore the name of one of the most prominent evangelists of the 19th century. And as you hear this critique, and as we sit there as, as these young college students, young college students who uh, were trained and did plenty of what I would call confrontational evangelism, we were struck with a reality, a question that bore down into us, are we being honest with ourselves? Clearly, the, the playwright and then screenwriter who, who, who wrote this script wanted us to come away with the conclusion that we were not. That what we were doing in those conversations was is not for the good of the other person, but in some way was self-appreciating, self-congratulatory, self-enhancing. Uh, self that somehow what we were doing was being less than real and less than honest. As Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he writes to a people, and, and it's kind of hard because we only get to hear one side of the phone call, right? We only get to hear Paul's response to what they've heard. But it is clear that they have heard that, that Paul is not someone to be trusted. And he's not someone to be trusted specifically because his gospel must be self-serving. In the ancient world, anyone with a, a decent amount of rhetoric could in some ways, like today, find an audience. They could gain wealth, they could gain influence, they could gain uh, notoriety by traveling from town to town, and the accusation against Paul seems to be that he is one of those, one of those salesmen, if you will. Look at verse 3. Look at how Paul responds to them. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Looks then further in, in verse 4. We speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery. We weren't trying to butter you up, nor with the pretext for greed. We weren't trying to get rich. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or, or from anyone else. If we wanted a name, that's not what we were doing there. I bring this up because... Uh, I think that, that one of the most frequent things that I hear, one of the, the most frequent presentations of, of just how invalid the Christian faith could be is that it's dishonest, that it's self-serving, that it uh, has a, a, a benefit to its bearers, but it has no benefit to the other people. And it's hard to, it's hard to dispel that. It's hard to say that that's wrong, and, and I just want to go through a few of the ways that we see that quickly. One, we see it very most obviously in the, the, the preachers the, who, 
uh, get rich, right? That there are preachers, we normally call them prosperity gospel preachers or, or things like that, but, but you can find, in fact, have you seen this new Instagram, Preachers and Sneakers? Okay, there's this, somebody set up this Instagram handle, and, and what he does is he gets pictures of the footwear that famous preachers are wearing. Apparently, they get to wear basketball shoes while they preach. I don't get to do that, but, you know, we're not all in. But they, they look, and he looks up the price tag, right? He finds the retail worth of, of that sneaker. And the whole point of it is to present the, this subtle, not-so-subtle fact that, that these preachers, while they proclaim that they're proclaiming something uh, other than themselves, are, in fact, finding themselves wealthy enough to spend $1,000 on a pair of shoes and a different pair of shoes for the week after. Right? It's hard to dispel the notion that the gospel is self-serving when, in fact, there are Christians who are preaching a gospel that is self-serving. It's also hard to, uh, to, to, to do that when you have a, a long, long history in the church of, of people who use the name of Jesus Christ to maintain power for themselves or to establish power from themselves. And we could look through a, a long history of, of racial and societal and economic ways that this has been done, but we don't have to even look that hard or in a church that's so different from our own. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, this notion of, of white nationalism uh, came to the fore as, as a man who went to a church that is very much like our church goes into a synagogue because of his hatred and, 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 and bitterness at Jews, and he murders people. The question is not whether he was right, because he was clearly, clearly wrong. You can see it spelled out all over the pages of the Bible, but the question is, is when it's that close, when the stink is that close to ourselves, when that stink is so close to us, it makes us ask the question, is our gospel self-serving? Does it give us a, a way to excuse upholding our own lives, a, a life that is um, self-edifying, self-serving? Right? We can see it uh, in, in the, the big stage as, as we see these uh, preachers and these men and women who at one time belonged to what they would have called the moral majority, right? The people who, who, who promised that they were after the kinds of lifestyles that God wanted for the world. And yet a few twists and turns down the political cycle and, and we find that they are just as lustful for political power as anyone else. They proclaimed that they preached a gospel which didn't benefit them, but it is clear in today's light that that's exactly what they're after. Right? We can sit here in the uh, cultural south and, and we can say that we are, are believers and that this is, is for the good of the world. And yet, so many things that we do to live out the faith give us a little boost. A little bump, a, a little feeling that we are doing the right thing, that we are uh, that we are okay, that we are notable, that we're worthwhile, that we can gain business even from being a Christian. 
And so we have these accusations, and they're accusations which aren't easy to dispel, that, that Christianity, as the majority culture in America, lives and exists, and, and it multiplies in order to enrich ourselves, to uh, gain political power for ourselves, to self-congratulate ourselves. And yet Paul's response to his critics in 1 Thessalonians, I think, could be helpful to us as well if it is true of us. Paul's response to these things is this scary phrase, look at my life. Look at my life. You've heard that I've, I've come to, to gain notoriety. You've heard that I fled town to save my skin. You've heard that I'm only after what is good for myself. But look at my life. He uses this example in verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Since it's Mother's Day, we'll play along with his, his illustration, right? Because there's something that is intrinsically different about a, a mother's relationship with their kid, and that is that they get so very little out of it, right? One of the few places that many of us have ever experienced a selfless love, a self-giving love, a love that doesn't have self-interest is with the mother or father. Or for those of us who haven't experienced that, we are bitter because we know that that ought to have been the case. Right? The mothers who, who, who pour out uh, their sleeping hours to nurse their babies. I was reminded of this this uh, weekend. Uh, my wife, Whitney, was out of town, and which left me with, with three kids. Um, and so uh, what I did is, is what I always do, right? I find the easiest way out of things, right? And so last night for dinner, we had um, waffles and sausage. Um, no, don't laugh. Brenner is a, equal is a very valid thing. But it also, I found out that if you don't give them vegetables, right, you don't have to fight over whether they finish their food. They just throw it down, right? There's no, there's no conflict. And yet, and yet their mother would never do that, right? Because no matter how hard the fight, she's, their health and their well-being is worth it to her. I was standing there making the waffles and, and putting them on their plates as, so that they could eat while the waffles were hot, right? And I ran back and forth and back and forth, and I was like, this stinks. When do I get to eat? Right? And I remember my mother sitting there with a bowl of cereal after she had fed my entire extended family pancakes, cleaned all the dishes, and had never eaten anything for herself because she wanted us to have the food while it was hot. Right? That's the kind of motherly love that Paul is pointing out here, that it is a, a, a motherly love that cares for her own children at the expense of herself, who cares for her children at the, uh, at the expense of what is good or right or desirous of her. It is a love of a mother that suffers for her children because she loves them. Paul points to his own persecutions and sufferings, and in fact, he did, as we talked about last week, have to flee town in the middle of the night to avoid arrest. He did face opposition and hostility and bitterness, and he says, I did not come to you because it was easy. 
I didn't come to you because it paid dividends in my life. I came to you because I was compelled, compelled with love. And if we are to sit here at Redeemer and we're to look up and down Cooper Street and if we are to present the gospel of Jesus in a way that is credible, in a way that is believable, then we have to put those dishonest, those gimmicky, self-interested ways of propagating the gospel behind us. Because while we may not go to the extremes I mentioned before, it's not hard to find others, right? When I was a kid, I would get a, a, a sticker or, or a, a treat from the treasure box, right, if I brought a friend to church with me, right? Do you realize the subtle shift in motivation there, right? If you bring a friend so that we can tell them about Jesus, then you get candy. So the motivation is not love or care for the other person, but for candy, we have adult versions of this too, right? Where, where if you have friends that are unbelievers, if you've engaged in their life, if you bring them with you to church, then you feel like you've done something you were supposed to do, right? You've checked a box. You've found a way to, to use them to make you feel better, right? We uh, can be a church that goes and, and serves in the community out of the hope that they come and they fill up our pews so that we can gain a few extra dollars in the collection plate as they pass by, right? Or can we be a church that serves with getting nothing in return? Can we be a church uh, where if we grow in numbers, it's only a byproduct of what God is doing in the hearts and lives of people, that attendance is not the goal, but it is the side benefit. It's the side growth. Could we be the, the kind of church that doesn't just uh, post about a, an issue on social media because it makes us look good or makes us look engaged, but we, we, we engage in the struggles and the heartaches of people who are near to us because it is for their good even if it costs us something to speak it. Could we be the kind of people, could we have the kind of defense that Paul has in this letter? Because if we hear this question, are we being honest with ourselves, we need to have an answer. But it's not just a, a self-congratulatory or a, a self-interested presentation of the gospel that's a way to be dishonest. There's another way to be dishonest. There's another way to be dis dishonest in our relationships with folks who don't know Jesus, who don't haven't experienced his grace and his love. And it's one that might challenge old Phil Cooper, the oil industrial lubricant salesman's perspective. You see, Phil assumes that, that to be authentic, to be engaged in another person's life, you can only ask questions and you can't live out, you can't explain, give another explanation, you can't provide another hope. And yet Paul's ministry here was done surprisingly to some of us with words, right? Our boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Because see, if the resurrection is real, 
if the resurrection is real, then it's not just something else to sell. Because if the resurrection is real, if death has really not just been endured but overcome, if death is not just something that, that happened in the past, but it, it is something which is, has an expiration date, if the message we have for a, a worn and, and haggard world is that there is rest to come, that there is rest in a God who knows them, who knows their worst and loves them the same. If our message to a, a tired and worn world is that there is hope, that there is purpose, that we don't have to find and, and look and, and make up our own identities, but there is a, a, a purpose for life that has been given to us. If the resurrection is real, it is not a story we tell to make people feel better, but it is, as he says in, in uh, well, he says it somewhere, verse 13, that it is the very word of God. Right, so the, the good news for the poor, the good news for the tired and the wearied, the good news for the broken is as that the resurrection happened. You see, a lot of us have friends, and, and a lot of us uh, try to, to not come in conflict with our friends, right? And one of the easiest ways to not come into conflict is to not bring up things that are kind of weird and awkward, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? But if we're not bringing up what we believe has transformed the world from the, the, the atoms of their universe to the greatest uh, measure of our cosmos, then are we being honest? Are we being honest with that person? Are we being honest with their struggles? Are we being honest with their sorrow? We don't just need to not be self-interested in the ways that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We need to be honest about what the resurrection really means. And by responding to it with earnest, and immediately we come to two problems. And I want to go through these quickly. The first is that the problem, first problem is, is we can't be honest about the, the implications of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection, because we don't know it. We don't believe it. We we, we know it, we say we believe it, but, but we've not uh, encountered it in the same way that, that Paul points out to these Thessalonians. Look at this, verse 13, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which, by the way, was, as we talked about last week, was all about the resurrection, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what is, as it was as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's a message that's at work in you believers because you became transformed lives. He says you received the same kind of treatment, the same kind of persecutions that, that your brothers and sisters received from the Jewish leadership. You see, the and, and it, it's painful that I even have to, to say this, but given that I brought up the synagogue shooting, right? Uh, the, the Bible is not anti-Semitic. The Bible is pointing out that it was the Jewish leadership who put Jesus to death because he didn't believe the same things they believed. 
And the very context of this verse is saying it's not just the Jews who do that, not just the, the cultural, the, the ethnic Jews, but it was, in fact, also the Greeks who were here, the context of this. You received from your own countrymen, it says in verse 14, the same treatment, because you don't live the same way that your countrymen do. You don't believe and order your life in the same way that you did. You know, persecution never happens because you believe something different from somebody else. It's when you don't believe what they believe that gets them riled up, right? Nobody is upset. I'm not upset because you are silly and you eat pineapple on your pizza, right? It's, it's, I'm upset when you say uh, cauliflower crust is better. And I'm going, whoa, that's just pure ridiculous, right? The cauliflower crust is not objectively better, right? I get upset because you don't believe the things that I believe, the things that I orient my life around, the things that I do. And so as we will come to see in this book, the, the, the resurrection is real and it's transformative and it changes the way that they go to work in the mornings and it changes the way that they grieve those who die. It changes the way that they approach sex. It changes the way that they pray. It changes the way that they talk to one another. It changes the way that they feel their very desires and their motives inside of you. Their transformation is so noticeable that the people around them hated them for it because they didn't trust in the same gimmicks and the same mechanisms that they did. I'm not just talking about morals, right? You can, you can pretend to have morals. You can choose to, to live a life that has morals that roughly are equivalent to the Christian moral code. What I'm talking about is an encounter with a transcendent God who rose from the dead. You can't fake that. You can't fake that, and you can't fake the, the implications and the changed life that comes from us. So the reason for some of us that we resort to tactics of, of evangelism that are self-appreciating or, or self-congratulatory or self-enriching is because we know of no other way to live in the world but to make it a gimmick, to make it a sales pitch. The second problem that we have with presenting Christ is that we are just, frankly, scared. Many of you grew up in churches like mine where the only kind of evangelism was this confrontational evangelism. It meant to, to, to be in a conversation and, and find and just wait for that moment, the, the, the tick that you could use to turn the conversation towards the end that you wanted, towards a, a message of, of sin and forgiveness. And what I'm not telling you that you have to do or that you should do in all circumstances, though God gives us plenty of chances and, and things that make us uncomfortable, is I'm not talking about a, a forced or scripted conversation, a, a forced scripted presentation of the gospel. What I'm talking about is that we're so scared to be seen as normal that even when it is natural for you to explain your faith, you don't. Even when it's natural for you to explain uh, the way that you see the world, you don't. 
even when your, your friends are, are connecting and, and they're conversing and they are arguing with one another about different ideals and that you, you sit in the corner because you know your perspective's uncomfortable, unpopular. Right? I'm not talking about trying to force and manipulate a conversation. I'm talking about our fear of wanting to be so normal that we hide our faith when it's entirely normal to say it, to speak it, to proclaim it. The kinds of lives that we see in Thessalonians are the kinds of people who, whose evangelism was when their lives were transformed. As they lived lives next to other people, they had a different perspective. So when they went to, to see uh, some expert art form, right? Some beautiful moment of, of, of music or, or, or visual art or a movie or a theater or a, a play, right? In a world that is just atoms and just material, then, then your appreciation for this moment of awe and shock is, can only be how you interpret it, how you feel in the moment. But for a Christian who has experienced the resurrection, those are moments that, that point us to a, a true reality. Those things are not distractions from the world. Those are things that remind us we live in a transcendent universe where God Almighty lives and breathes, where a God who makes us and creates us and who longs to be near us is. Can we talk about that? With our friends? Can we explain how the beauty of that moment for you is important because it points to a truer reality than you see in your day to day? Can you, as you live life and as you experience a harrowing grief, the kind of grief that makes your bones ache, a loss that pains your very soul and and your friends want you to drink bottoms up to get through the day. When your friends say that, that this will get better with time, can you, can you as someone who has known the power of the resurrection of Jesus say, no, no, this hurts so bad because it's supposed to hurt so bad. This hurts so bad because there is a God who made life and he did not make it to experience death. He made it to live forever. And so this grief I will sit in. This grief I will go to God in. This grief is not a, a condition to overcome, but this is a grief that points me to the reality of a transcendent God who makes heaven and earth. Can you have that? conversation with your friends right the reality of the resurrection is not a gimmick it's not a, a summary that is is easily uh, cheapened or, or distilled down to to mere words because it is a gospel that is proclaimed in the fullness of life and what this text asks us and as we hear that that question posed to us are you being honest are you being real? Can we, after seeing who Jesus is and after knowing the reality of his resurrection, can we be the kinds of people who eschew whatever self-interest we have 
whatever good feeling, whatever good reputation, whatever good hope that we could get for ourselves and, and, and show these people a love that, that benefits us nothing but gains them everything. Could we, upon seeing the reality of the resurrection, live out an honestly transformed life, a life that lives out, that looks like, that hopes for what real resurrected life is? Could we be the kind of people who put words to that, who put hope in that, who live it out in front of the world to see? To be dishonest, to not tell the world of a resurrected life that is possible. Pray with me. God, we gather this morning, and Lord, our longing for you can be distorted. Our longing for you can be conflated, God. We, at times, so are desirous of our own methods and, and life that we will even use and abuse your word to benefit ourselves. God, or we will hide from proclaiming you or knowing you because it feels like it might hurt ourselves. But God, in the reality of a resurrection, there's no room for gimmicks. There is no room for play. There is only room to be transformed. So God, transform us. God, by your spirit, walk with us. God, by your patience, and your love woo us back to you over and over and over again. Amen.